Uh, we've had a search committee that's been looking for just about a year now for an associate pastor of family ministries. And uh, Dan is a candidate for that position. And so uh, when I talked to him about this occasion and preaching, I said, why don't you, uh, you know, pick a passage of scripture that would help us to get to know you and kind of what your heartbeat is and what your passion is and so on. And so uh, it's just a privilege to welcome Dan and his lovely wife, Tara. Why don't you just stand up, Tara, so people know who you are. And Dan, come and lead us in, in God's word today. Thank Thanks, you, David. Well, after a time of worship together like that, I almost feel like it's uh, appropriate for me to just pray and close our time together. Praying, uh, singing God's word the way we did and, and being in worship together really is a blessing. Uh, Tara and I have really appreciated being here with you all this weekend, getting to see some, some familiar faces from our last visit. Uh, it truly is a, a great time of fellowship for us. It's something that we actually both really enjoy and appreciate, being able to be in fellowship. We find it to be a place of encouragement in our, our walk of faith, uh, a chance for us to give voice to what God's doing in our life through our relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, I think that's what makes Christianity so unique from the world religions around it, is that at the core of all things, at the core of Christianity, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about a, a relationship that as Christ followers, we are committed to. Now, don't get me wrong, in Christianity, we have our valuable doctrines, our, our beliefs, we have our religious practices, which are healthy for us to, to engage in together and also as individuals. But at the core of it, there's this central and most important relationship with Jesus Christ. And what I'm excited to explore with you all this morning is the importance that this relationship with Jesus had on the early church in the book of Acts. Highlighting this relationship with Jesus Christ is something very important for us to do. And I think that it is that because we need to know where we're starting from in order to get to our goal. And our goal, as we read from Scripture, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so... Uh, so that was the, the, such an important role for the early church to, to begin to be formed around not just learning these religious practices, this way of life as they had known from the temple, but learning what does it mean to live in relationship with Jesus Christ. Early on in the book of Acts, we actually we hear some words from Jesus before he ascends back up into heaven. And he gives a, a command, a commission to his followers to be witnesses to this relationship. This relationship which, as we explore throughout the book of Acts, really exploded the church. People were magnetized to what a life was like living in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as, as the early followers witnessed to that relationship, the church grew. And that's what we do today. We are witnesses to that relationship. There's a, a preacher named S.M. Lockridge, and, and I know it's kind of cheating to, to read the words of another preacher from the pulpit, but I want to share with you guys a few words from, from a, 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 a sermon he preached at one point, a, a sermon he shared with people, sharing his description of what he found to be of Jesus in the scriptures. He says, the Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I, I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. 
He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes. He saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. That's an incredible description of Jesus. And so the question I ask for all of us today is, is that what comes to mind when we hear the name of Jesus? Is this what's on our hearts when we think about this relationship that we have the opportunity, the invitation to enter into with him? It's what the early chapters of Acts are all about. Jesus' disciples are beginning to proclaim this king, to share the story, the news of this relationship that's offered to all. They're going around, they're asking, do you know this king? In our passage this morning, the religious leaders, they want to know who this king is as well. And so I want to invite us all as we turn to the book of Acts in our our Bibles, chapter 4. I want to read the first 11 verses of chapter 4. Beginning in in verse 1, Acts chapter 4, we read these words. The priests and the captain, the temple guard, and Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to be about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas and John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel... It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. I wonder if you would join me in prayer before we dwell deeply on the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we we know that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. What a gift it is that we could 
talk about, that we could explore, that we could study what your word has to say. We pray that you would give us ears to hear it, hearts open to receive it, and the grace and courage to see it mold and shape our lives going out from here. May we hold up your word with great eagerness today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, before we get to the passage where we're at this morning, already, has, has hap- already much has happened here in the book of Acts. Jesus, as I mentioned, has ascended back into heaven. He's returned to his heavenly Father, and yet he's given uh, a command to his followers to, to go back to Jerusalem, to go back up to the upper room and to wait for the gift that he would give them, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're familiar with this, the story of Pentecost, it was when, when Jesus sent his, his uh, helper, his uh, comforter to his followers, and they, they met him, or the, the comforter came to them in the upper room and, and filled the lives of the, the followers of Christ. And in the days after, they preached the good news to many who were gathered around from Jerusalem, from around the world, in native languages, and were told from scriptures that over 3,000 people came to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Over 3,000 people placed their hope in the, the relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this posed a problem for the religious leaders of the day. And it, it ruffled their feathers quite a bit. So if we were actually to, to, to turn the pages of our Bible back a page or two, we'd actually read the story that has Peter and John in hot water right now with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the religious leaders. In chapter 3, Peter and John healed a crippled man who sat by the entrance of the temple and would beg for money as people went in and out. And, and as Peter and John were going into the temple, he did the same to them. He asked them if they had any money for him. Oh, Peter and John turned to him, and Peter says, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. They healed this man in the name of Jesus Christ. And again, not only did they heal this man, but as they preached that good news of the relationship with Jesus Christ, over 3,000 people came to place their trust in him. See, the priests and the Sadducees, they're not happy about this message of salvation in Christ alone continuing to be preached. They thought they had handled that issue when they crucified Christ. They're disturbed to see people placing their trust in a relationship with Jesus rather than trusting in the righteousness that they taught, that, that they professed, that they encouraged people to embrace. A, a righteousness that was obtained through strict obedience to the law through practices in the, in the temple. So the religious leaders are upset, and they throw Peter and John in jail. We read in the scriptures that the next day, the the rulers, the elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, sorry, Annas, the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. Now, if any of these names sound familiar to you, it's probably because they are. This is the same religious leadership council that gathered before Jesus and and pulled Jesus in and and ultimately condemned him to death on a cross. The council was like the Senate and the Supreme Court for the Jews. They were those who would hold a a position of religious leadership. They would be responsible for upholding the religious practices of the temple, for safeguarding the law, deciding outcomes in cases of dispute, and even punishing those who they found were guilty. And Peter and John are now standing before the same leadership team that plotted against Jesus and made sure to put him to death on a cross. And I can only imagine that they must be at least a little bit intimidated to be standing there. 
And so the, the council begins to question Peter and John. We read in verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? That's a great question, isn't it? By what power or by what name did Peter and John heal this man? See, I don't think the religious leaders were so concerned about the healing of the man. They want to know the power behind the healing. They want to know what was empowering Peter and John to do these very things. Now, each week at our church, I gather with our other staff members, and we have great discussions about things going on in the life of our church, the, the ministries we're doing, the, the things we've done, the things we have coming up. And as you can imagine, in a staff meeting, uh, people are talking or having great discussions, and some people fidget. I mean, if we've, if we've been in meetings at work, you know, some of us click pens, we, we play with rubber bands, maybe there's a stress ball we squeeze, some of us doodle on our notes. Uh, I just so happen to be fiddling with one of these mind puzzles. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but sometimes it's a, it's a, a horseshoe that's got rings that are attached to it, and you have to find some way that the, the rings are actually become separated from the horseshoe. And um, as you can imagine, that is kind of noisy in a meeting as well, so I probably shouldn't have been doing it, but um, it just so happened, I think, to, to bug one of the other staff members that was near me. So he quickly grabbed it from me and quickly separated it. And, uh, well, on one hand, I'm, I'm proud of him. You know, that's great. You did that. But you can imagine the question in my mind, how did you do that? So I, I didn't want to necessarily have the ring and the horseshoe separate. I want to know how did he do it. I think in a, in a similar sense that, uh, that even as I want to know how the ring and the horseshoe was separated, I think that the religious leaders want to know what it was that was empowering Peter and John, not just to heal this man, but to preach this word that was drawing people in, not to themselves, but to this relationship with Jesus Christ. They wanted to know what name and power was turning people away from trusting the authority of the leadership council and trusting in the name of Jesus. Now, in talking about a name or a label, we're, we're actually we're, we're talking about a way of identifying someone. There's nothing magical about using a person's name. It's not like a magician uses the word abracadabra. A name carries a person's reputation. It carries the collective of their whole character. All of who a person is is wrapped up in their name. What they believe, what they stand for, what they value. God's promises to people like Abraham and David in the Bible to make their name great was actually to give them a great place of legacy, a, a, a great reputation a great role in the span of time and history in God's plan for this world. So let's, let's play a little game together. What comes to mind for you when I say Dunkin' Donuts? You think of coffee, and good coffee, right? Or, or delicious donuts. Um, maybe some I should cut back on as well, by the way. Take a note for later, please. Um, or, or maybe it works for you to say, what comes to mind when you think of Starbucks? Or... or Maybe it works for you to say what comes to mind when you think of the New England Patriots, a, a championship team, right? I mean, I, I think. Am I still in safe territory with that? No, okay, looking down. <laughs> Thanks for not answering, Dave. I should have talked to you beforehand. Or how about Toyota? At one point, maybe, Toyota was known for its dependability of cars, right? When we hear a name, the, the character and integrity of the person or organization behind the name comes to the surface for us. For many people in the Boston area, there's, there's a phrase going around called Boston Strong. I don't know if you've heard it, but for many people in the Boston area, the reputation that goes with that is courage and strength in the face of adversity and evil. The use of a name is powerful and meaningful, carrying with it the ideals, beliefs, values 
of the person and character that stand behind the name. See, I think the religious leaders ask a great question of Peter and John. They ask, by what power or in what name did you do this? The name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In Acts chapter 3, we read in verse 12 that, uh, or we can read in verse 12 that when Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Later in verse 16, Peter says, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Are we starting to catch the theme here? It's the name of Jesus. It makes sense that when Peter and John are before the religious leaders, they would answer their, their question with these words found in verse 10. They say, Know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. It's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So what's in the name? What is it about the name of Jesus that made over 2,000 people place their trust in a relationship with Jesus Christ that day and turn from trusting in this religious obedience to law? How is the name of Jesus powerful for us today? Well, I believe our passage this morning points to two central things that we can take from our passage that, that can encourage us to trust in the name of Jesus. Jesus is our foundation, and he's our only place of salvation. Let's, let's take some time now, though, to, to sit with this idea of Jesus being our foundation. A life lived in the power of Jesus' name looks to their relationship with, for, with Jesus for strength and stability. In, in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, it says, He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Peter's quoting a passage from Psalm 118 here. It's a, a psalm of, of rescue and salvation. It's a psalm that the religious leaders would have been well familiar with. In Psalm 118, verse 22, it actually says, The stone you builders rejected has become the, the capstone. And if you were to actually spend time dwelling through that whole psalm, you would understand, you would see that it's a psalm about salvation. It's a psalm about God rescuing us. It's a psalm about God being a refuge and strength for us, a comfort in times of trouble. But there is a subtle difference here. You see, Psalm 118 is, is, is a, a, an anticipation, a prediction of the coming Messiah. And here, Peter and John say, well, that was the Messiah. The, the cornerstone, the capstone you all crucified. Peter points out that Psalm 118 has been fulfilled in their presence. He's saying that the religious leaders are the builders who missed the mark in building up God's people. The mistake they made was thinking that they could build a structure without this most important capstone. Now, the capstone was a very important stone in the structure of a building. There's some debate by scholars over whether it was at the top of a building, at the bottom, but the idea of the stone was that it would give strength and stability between two supporting walls. The example of the capstone in the picture here is one that's wedged between, uh, in the middle of the archway to create strength and st stability, if you can imagine holding up the archway. And just as either side of this archway is dependent on the capstone pictured here, so our lives are dependent on the capstone to give, give our lives a stable and strong structure 
the capstone of Jesus Christ. The problem is we turn to many different things we believe will give us stability in our lives. We turn to many different things we think will give us strength and stability, and we make something else the capstone of our lives. We live as if our jobs make our lives secure. But what happens when our company downsizes? Maybe our good health has given us a sense of security and stability in our lives. But what happens when you get a call from your doctor with test results that you were hoping not to get? I remember when our our younger son was a week old, we were sitting in our living room celebrating. My parents were up visiting, and um, I got a call from his pediatrician. It was about 6 o'clock in the evening, so you can imagine when I saw the number on my phone, I thought, oh, this is odd, an odd time of day for a doctor to call. And uh, as I spent a few moments on the phone with him, he communicated to me that they'd received uh, Max, our younger son, his newborn screening results, basically these tests that they give each child as they're born. And they identified a gene uh, that had a, a, a mutation in it that was associated with cystic fibrosis. And so in the days following, we, uh, we had to wait to, to go down to Boston and to go through a series of tests to identify whether or not he was a carrier of the gene, whether it was maybe just a, a mistake in the testing, or whether he was actually sick with cystic fibrosis. And uh, in the days that followed, we actually were able to receive good news that though he was a carrier of the gene, he wouldn't actually be sick. He, he, would, he would be okay. Uh, but it was in those days that I realized how unstable and uncertain our lives can be when we allow our health to be the foundation of our lives. To live as if, you know, because we're healthy, things are going okay, and so God must be happy with me. The truth is, sometimes we place our trust in good things that make weak foundations for our lives because they they change. They change from time to time or from season to season. In the name of Jesus, we have a strong and stable structure. We have a strong foundation to build our lives upon. We have an unchanging and firm foundation that will never leave us nor forsake us. A foundation that Scripture testifies to being constantly present no matter how challenging the storms of life get. In Psalm 46.1, we read that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. If we're laid off, though our job may be gone, our foundation remains to uphold us and give us strength. Though our health may take a turn for the worse, our foundation remains present, promising to never leave us nor forsake us during those lonely moments of uncertainty. The truth as we read it in Hebrews 13.8 about Jesus is that our foundation, Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. A capstone that will never crumble, crack, or weaken. Jesus himself speaks of the importance of a strong and stable structure to build our lives upon. In the Sermon on the Mount, when he's teaching his followers, he actually tells a story in Matthew chapter 7 about two different builders, two different foundations. It's a, it's a story of, of two very different foundations for our homes, which he uses as a metaphor for our lives. One foundation is bedrock and the other is sand. One builder, the, the builder who builds his life on the sand, he picks any spot, a, a very simple, easy way to start building his house upon. The one who builds his house on the bedrock, well, he, he has to dig down. He digs through the sand to the bedrock before he starts building up. A much more difficult process, but one that we come to find out is, is healthy. See, in life, there are many storms that we face. And in the story that Jesus shares, both builders, both houses face the same storm. The one who built his house on the sand, well, as you can imagine, that house didn't endure the storm. But the one who built his house on the rock, 
it withstood the storm. Jesus goes on to explain the passage that those who placed their trust in him and his words were like the builders who had chosen a foundation of rock for their lives. But I think that Jesus' words are more than just wisdom about how to live our lives. Jesus' words are words of comfort and strength. They're words that connect us to our creator and place us in his unfolding plan for this world. With Jesus Christ as our strong foundation, we can endure any life, any storm in this life with confidence. Is there any question in your mind why so many people were placing their trust in a relationship with Jesus Christ? They no longer had to trust a shaky relationship with the law, a shaky foundation for their lives which was dependent upon their ability to obey religious laws. The foundation offered to the people by the religious leaders was more like the foundation of sand. It was a weak foundation that was dependent on each person's own ability and strength to lead obedient lives. The moment they made a mistake, their foundation would begin to crumble and crack, and they would return to the temple. They would offer sacrifices, hoping to be back in God's graces, to have a a strengthened, a reformed foundation. But as you can imagine, that would be tiring. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like nothing you ever do is good enough, or no matter how hard you try, you can't help but make mistakes? So I think the invitation for you and for me today is to make Jesus Christ the foundation of our lives. A foundation that will not crumble, that will not crack, because it's not dependent on our own ability, it's dependent upon Jesus Christ alone. There's power in the name of Jesus, because he is the capstone. He's the cornerstone upon which God's people can build their lives. There's power in the name of Jesus, because we can trust him to be an ever-present help in times of trouble. He can be an ever-present, secure foundation to build the the structure of our lives and our families upon. Like a, a capstone holds two walls, there's power in the name of Jesus to comfort us and uphold us and strengthen us when the storms of life hit. In Jesus, our capstone, we have a solid and secure foundation. But as we look at verse 12, we come to see that the second aspect of the power of Jesus' name is salvation. A life lived in the power of trusting in the name of Jesus is a life that has found true salvation. Reading in verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Throughout the book of Acts, for someone to call on the name of Jesus was a way to identify themselves as a follower of Jesus. One who places their trust in Jesus and allows him to be Lord of their lives. In Acts 10, 43, we read that all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. When Peter and John were preaching in the name of Jesus, they were preaching a salvation for eternal life. In verse 2 of our passage this morning, we're told that they, the the religious leaders, were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The salvation that Peter and John spoke of was much different from the salvation that the religious leaders spoke of. The salvation that the religious leaders taught was a salvation that was dependent on a person's ability to obey the law. They They promoted and taught a religion that was legalistic and impossible to live out in our own strength and abilities. 
One could imagine how difficult a life like this would be, chasing after salvation that kept slipping through their grasp. There's always more to do to receive God's love and forgiveness. Maybe there are some of us this morning who are feeling the burden of living this way today. It's kind of like when the tires of your car run out of air. You, you put air in the tire in the afternoon, then when you get up the next morning and go to work, when the tire's flat again, and you have to refill it again. Or maybe this works for some of the younger people in our congregation this morning. If you've ever tried to fill a water balloon that's got a small leak in it, you add water to the balloon, you fill the water balloon, but by the time you tie it off, a bunch of the water's already seeped out of the water balloon. It's not as effective to toss at your friends. I, I think that that's a little bit of what it looks like when we live our spiritual lives trusting in our own obedience, our, our own uh, strength to get ourselves back into the graces of God. Living our spiritual lives like this every day, trying to earn our love and forgiveness, it gets exhausting. It leaves us feeling depleted of whatever emotional and spiritual power we thought we had. But the good news that Peter and John preached that day was different. They preached a salvation that wasn't dependent upon our own obedience. It was dependent upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, we actually read that now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This salvation, this righteousness, is a free gift that we cannot earn nor lose once we've accepted it in the invitation to a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a salvation by grace and not by any of our own works. Philip Yancey defines this grace in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He, he writes that the grace of God is this. There is nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. I want to say that again because I think that's very important for us to take hold of. I think that's very impo- important for us to, to grasp onto. There is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. The salvation we find in Jesus Christ alone is free to us, and it's not earned. Now, forgive me if you've heard me share this story before. I know I've shared it with some of you, so uh, if, if it's repeating for you, um, just sit back and enjoy the story. It's, it's it's one that I believe God's been using in my life. He's been working at my heart, in my heart with. And, um, and I find that he does that often through my relationship with, with both my sons, but um, because I've had more time with him, with my, my older son, Alex. About a year ago, Alex started a swim class at a local YMCA. And he was, he, he's still learning. He's doing a great job. But um, this first class, I was excited to, to go with Tara to, to see him in the water and to, to get excited about starting up again. But I had a staff meeting that I had to leave early for. And so uh, we w- I went for the first part of it, but then had to leave, as you can imagine, a little bit before it was done. So I didn't get to see him afterwards. But um, I did get a call from Tara later on in the day. And uh, she shared with me a story about when Alex got out of the water, he came up to her and he said, Mommy, did Daddy see me swimming? I was trying really hard because I wanted to make him proud. Now those words, they stopped me dead in my tracks. Because in that moment, I realized that my son was trying really hard to make me proud. 
that in a sense, my son thought that he had to try hard to earn my love. Now, what he doesn't know is that whether he got in the water that day or not, I couldn't have loved him more. What I, what I came to see is that, that this is how God sees me as well. I realized that God couldn't love me more, whether I did something to make him proud or not. God's love and forgiveness is free to me, not dependent on how good of a person I am or how much of the Bible I know. Sure, Alex's swimming brought me joy. I loved seeing him in the water. I loved seeing him having fun and trying hard. It brought me a sense of glory. But my love for him, my relationship with him, how, how I see him is not dependent upon his performance. God's love for us is not dependent on our performance either. Sure, our obedience brings God joy and glory just as Alex's, uh, Alex practicing his swimming brought me joy. Just as Alex grew in his ability to swim by practicing swimming, the practicing of our faith helps us grow and be conformed to the image of Christ. Our obedience does a number of things, but it does not earn us a greater measure of God's love or salvation. This is the salvation that God offers us in Jesus Christ. A salvation of grace that means there's nothing we can do to earn it and nothing we can do to lose it. This salvation frees us from the burdens of our failed performances in the past and gives us power to live each day in a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. In John 14, 6, Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way of grace, love, significance, and security. In Jesus' name is truth and authority. In Jesus, we're all invited to follow him, and he, he will lead us to true life, abundant life. There's power in the name of Jesus because only in the name of Jesus can we find true salvation that our heart hungers for. It's a power that frees us from wasting the time and energy given to us in trying to earn our own salvation. It's a power that comes to us with these words from Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In the name of Jesus, we have a strong foundation and true salvation to live the life we've been given to live with power. We're not trusting in our own ability or strength to accomplish the day ahead of us. We're not trusting the words of praise of others or the relationships around us for our confidence or our strength or our salvation. We're not trusting in our good health or our jobs as a sign of our salvation. We're placing ourselves under his lordship. We're placing our trust in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father God, we do come before you, and, and, and yet, Lord, I know that many of us, myself included, find myself falling back into this place with thinking that you see me through the lenses of my own performance, my own ability, my own, my own doings. Lord, I pray you would free our hearts to trust that you could not love us more, that there's nothing we could do to make you love us more, and Lord, free our hearts from the burden to think that there's, so that we might believe that there's nothing we can do that would make you love us less. Lord, I pray that in that place of freedom, our hearts would embrace this relationship. 
that we would see it as at the core of all that we do as a church, in our families, in our homes, in our marriages, in the relationships we share with those around us, that at the core of it all is Jesus Christ and the relationship we have in him. May we trust and be dependent upon him and him alone. Thank you, Father, that we have your word to, to speak into our hearts, and I pray for the grace and the courage to let your word mold us and shape us as we go out from here. In Jesus' name, amen.